program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Arlene Drake, a psychotherapist specializing in trauma recovery and a pioneer in the field of adult survivors of sexual abuse. Her groundbreaking new book, Care Frontation, Breaking Free from Childhood Trauma, will walk you through the process that she has used for more than three decades to help thousands of people heal their deepest pain. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on today, Dr. Drake. Nice to be here, Catherine. Thank you. Well, okay, as I understand it, uh, I guess uh, confrontation, carefrontation, I'm calling care it confrontation, carefrontation care right. <laughs> yeah, care can help anyone who has experienced emotional or physical abuse. So I assume, is that the case? Yeah. Yes, it is. If they do the work, you know, if they do the work. So what does, if they do the work, it's always if you do the work, right? Isn't it? Yeah, the way you deal with childhood and emotional abuse and physical abuse is maybe slightly or is different or qualitatively different than the traditional way of helping people to get over childhood traumas. Probably is. I, I, um, I use a method that I've devised, but, you know, what I use, I, I don't use anything new. I don't think there's anything new on the horizon here. I'm not, you know, I, I use a lot of right-hand, left-hand writing, which is not my invention. I use psychodynamics. I, I use cognitive. I use many things. But the way I put it together really helps people have a path to recovery and really not being chained to that childhood trauma that somehow keeps us back in our lives in many, many different areas. Well, you talk about the fact that many people survive the abuse. You know, right. They're able to survive it. They go on with their lives, but they haven't really recovered. They no. and, and there's a difference. So talk to us about that difference. Well, I think the thing is, um, you know, Jung says, uh, until you make the unconscious conscious, it'll run your life and you'll call it fate. And I think the difference is this. I, you know, I get a lot of people that come to me, they've been in therapy 15 or 20 years, um, and, and they know all about what happened, and they could tell me their story, but what they know in their mind is not what they feel in their heart. It's a, it, there are two different things going on. So all of the knowledge in the world does not necessarily change the feelings they have about themselves or the conflict they have inside of themselves in their heart. And... Um, I, I have a method where I use uh, a lot of homework and, and right-hand, left-hand writing, which really connects both sides of the brain. You know, the brain has the left and the right hemisphere, and um, the left hemisphere is the, is the side of the brain that, that, you know, one and one are two, and, and it's very logical and figuring things out. And the right side of the brain is, is the brain that has feelings. It's your creativity. It's your little kid, and the back of the brain, uh, further down, is sort of a reptilian brain that 
that has pre-verbal feelings that you you know that you may have feelings that you don't even have a name for them or you didn't at the time. So um, what I do is I I create um, a process by which we really get to know that inner child, that child that was hurt, because what they're finding now in therapy is that the adult could tell the story all they want, but if that child part does not have a voice and cannot speak and express their emotions and what happened, you're not going to heal. And that's been done in some of the trauma work they're doing now. Um, so Arlene, so, let, I want to just stop for a second sure. because I want to put that in a context of of an actual client or an actual patient because okay. you're talking about, yeah, people come in, they're adults, they tell their story and some of them are horrific, obviously, but you really, your technique is to get back to that, that inner child. So give us a, an example, give us an example of, of an actual client or patient uh, coming to you with a childhood trauma, whatever it is, physical, right. emotional, or both, and and take us through that in the context of how you would treat them. Well, when the person first comes to me, I, I, we we talk about you know what when did the trauma? How old were you? What, you know, and it's not what's wrong with you; it's what happened to you, and how old were you? And we, how old were you when you first had this feeling of depression or whatever? And they think and you know maybe around four or five, whatever they say, and it, you know this is a guesstimate. And we talk about that part of them that was hurt at a very, very young age, that part of them that they really don't deal with. And um, so I ask them to really visualize this. And, and from their viewpoint, what happened to that kid? What happened? What was going on? And they know, and uh, we, we talk about that. And, and um, when they leave the, my first session, I give them a lot of information. And the first session, when they leave my office, I say, I say okay, you're going to go home with this child now. So you take the six-year-old or five-year-old by the hand, and you go home this week. And everything you do has to be done with the intention of taking care of that child. So you don't go uh, and go out and, and get drunk, and you don't have road rage. Everything you do, you, you eat properly. You you get enough rest. You do you do what's right. If you you, you do what's right for the six year old, you take care of the six year old. So if you had a six year old with you all week, I'm sure a lot of your behaviors would change. And you know I think it usually does. And if in fact they remember that, which they usually do, and that's pretty impactful, they come back and we talk about that. Um, and then I ask them to. Um, do, do some homework. I have them write a commitment letter to this child. I have them bring in pictures and write a commitment letter because nobody has really uh, taken care of that child. Most of my clients, their family doesn't really know what happened. They're afraid to talk to anybody. Uh, maybe uh, their sponsor knows or maybe a close friend or two, but if even that... So they're carrying all of this. Well, I hear you saying, oh, can I, I just want to stop you here because sure. like, what's the presenting problem? Some, I, usually they have some kind of an addiction. They're drinking too much. It could be they addiction. Have a, uh, many times I, I don't deal with getting people uh, clean and sober, but, but many people come from me from a 12 step program and they find their lives are just not working and they find they, their, their, their jobs are, are, there's a problem in their jobs. There's a, they're not where they want to be in life. Uh, they may have a, financial uh, issues, the relationship issues, you know, it presents itself in many, many different ways. And, and when we talk about what happened to them is, is where the root cause, because if you don't get to the root cause of things, it's not going to hold. You know, I always say... So what like, usually has happened to them in the past? What kinds of traumas? Like, give us some examples. Well, it could be um, 
I, I had a, a young man who, who was uh, severely molested by an uncle when he was young. And he was a very, um, at this point in time, he was very successful in, in, a, in a business, uh, a sales rep for a big company, and um, doing well. But he, he just has never really had a relationship, and he always feels like something is holding him back. So he already told the story about the trauma, but he didn't really know his little kid. And when we went into it further, he realized that his kid had always been stuck under the bed. That's where his little kid was, under the bed. For, and he was about 40. So his little kid was stuck under the bed with all of his pain, and nobody ever addressed it. So what I have the client do is actually start a relationship with that kid to find out what happened and, and, and what is going on. Because um, most people are, only do a couple of things about your inner child. They, they only visit the inner child once or t- twice. But I like to make the inner child a part of your life, really discussing things, asking that child what's going on, asking that child what do they need, so you have a real relationship with that child. And once that happens, and I do that by right hand, left hand, so I have them ask questions with their dominant hand and answer with their non-dominant hand. And in, in a while, Isn't that, you can't ask, that be terrifying for, for, I mean, really terrifying for, to do that? Cause I think when one suffers from a, a trauma, like you say, his mm-hmm. uncle abused him, it's really scary to do that because you tend to want to just, as you say, uh, well, sweep it under the rug, literally, and right. not go back to it. Yeah. Right. Well, and um, that's been the problem. If, if there's somebody, and that usually happens, who's been in therapy for so long, and nothing has really gotten them over it. They understand everything. They, you know, I ask them, do you want to be, you know, you're, you're the only one that could be the good parent now. Nobody else stepped up to the plate for you. But you have an opportunity to step up for the plate and really take care of that child and, and get them out of that situation and feel better. So you either want to be a good parent or you could be a parent like your parents were. You know, it's your choice at this point in time. Usually people are in enough pain where they want to take that risk. And the good thing is the people that come in, I mean, they're adults already, and most of them, they're very high-functioning. They could navigate the world. And if, if I had dropped, I say, if I had dropped a child off at your house today, I know that child would be safe because you're smart. You know what to do. You just have to use that same wisdom for your own child. How long does so, the process take usually, or does it depend on what kind of trauma it was? Like, it let's say, yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, there's sexual abuse, too. It depends on the person and, and how they do the work. It could take anywhere from two to four years. But at least when it's over, it's over. It's not a 20-year deal, and then you're going out looking for other therapy. But it's a commitment, and I would assume, obviously, it, you know, two to four years is a huge commitment. And right, it is it would a commitment. Seem, yeah, I mean, it would seem to me your clients would be having, like you said, they've been in therapy for years and years and nothing has happened. Right. So are, is yours like the, you know, last resort? They, the, the, Mine is the, usually the last resort. I've had many people come in and say, this is my last stop, which really um, scares me because, they mean, you know, they mean it in a way that's very scary. And, um, yes, I am the last resort. But the people that stay and graduate have a whole, a whole different life, and they are able to uh, take care of themselves like they've never been able to before and really understand, you know, that unconscious and take care of that hurt kid. Because what happens is when we're so hurt is that child runs our life in so many different ways. And, and it's not good for a child to run an adult life. 
An adult has to Give be a loving example. parent. Give us examples. How does the child run their life? How does the child run their life? What happens, well, for instance? I have a man in the example who's, uh, you gave, or I'm sorry, what? In the example you gave, or another example. Well, I have a, a man who's in, a, uh, in an advertising business, and his child would run his life by by acting out, yelling, um, not being able to contain his anger, uh, getting hurt by the slightest thing, and not really acting like the smart man he is. And that and that ruined his career for a while. He's he's doing a great job now, but but he had to be brought down to his knees before he realized that this kid can, it cannot just act like a spoiled brat and 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 have his way all the time. He's got to be contained and loved and taken care of. And the adult has got to you know I like to call what I do repairing and reparenting. So that adult is is really learning parenting skills too to take care of this child. And to make that child feel contained and safe and comforted. How does this affect the rest of the family? Let's, are you seeing this person or this in, uh, in, as an individual? Or do you bring in their partner or their children? Uh, how does that work? Well, I don't bring in anybody until t- really toward the end. Uh, most of the time, their children don't know about the depth and breadth of whatever happened to them. Sometimes their partners do know. And I may talk about the process, and they could be supportive, but I don't really, uh, they don't really get involved uh, on, on a weekly basis. Um, I mean, I have a woman who called me. I've had a few women who've called me and told me that they wanted to bring their husbands in <laughs> because the, uh, the sexual abuse had come out, and, it, and it's now uh, affecting their relationship. But I don't have them with me, no. Um, maybe once in a while just to check in, but, but it's really the person's process that they have to walk that, that path and they have to take care of that child and make it part of their lives. You know, and know really what happened, not just the story. You know, people can come in and they know their story and they, they just say it by rote, you know, yes, this happened, blah, 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 but they really don't know the, 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 the depth and breadth of it and what it's doing to them. You know, it's like looking at the ocean. I could ask you, what does the ocean look like? Well, it's blue, it's vast, it's got waves, it has maybe foam on the waves, different color blues, but that's only the top of the ocean. If you went diving into the ocean, you would find many, many different things going on. You'd, you'd find different, different places, different, different uh, sections of life, and that's really what our unconscious and subconscious is about. And most of us, we don't go deep sea deep diving there, so we don't really know. We only know what we know, which is from the surface. And until you really know that unconscious and, and, and take that child and hear that child, what they're finding out now in trauma work is that <clears throat> the child himself or herself has to speak. So it's important to have the child tell you what happened. And I do that with the right hand, left hand. It's important to ask the child what happened when you were five. What, what, how did you feel? Who took care of you? And then you get the real feelings that come up. Even people who have not really felt a lot, you know, um, really get it once their child starts talking. And once that child starts talking and they can hear and that child becomes a real child, that adult could then step in and be the good adult and take care of that child and really calm that child, soothe that child, and, and be that child's parent and not let the child run the show but, but love that child and take care of that child, and they as the adult take care of their adult life. And that's really the difference. Because if you don't know the child and everything that happened and that child doesn't get a chance to speak, you're not going anywhere. 
What about, and I know that one of the final steps can be confronting your abuser. Now, does this mean confronting the, actually confronting the abuser? Maybe they're not even available. Maybe they're, well, right. but they may it, not be is available. that something that one needs to do? Is that one need, something one needs to do? Well, if that, if, if, if it's not dangerous and if it's, if they're alive, of course. Um, yes, I do have them, uh, and I like to call it care front because, you know, we have to tell ourselves the truth of what happened all the way down to the bare bones. Otherwise, um, so part of it, care fronting, is care fronting ourselves with the whole truth, not half truths or three quarters, but the whole truth. Uh, so, yes, I do like them to either send a letter or call their abuser, and most of the time, it ends up to be the, the mother and father, too. Like my one client whose child was under the bed, well, he did care for his abuser, at, actually at a family funeral. And, um, and, it, and I had his parents come in, in my office, and they, they flew in from the Midwest somewhere. And, you know, they never noticed what happened to him, and they didn't know. But, you know, my theory is that adults should know what happened. And they should find out, they should investigate, because when a child is sexually abused, their behavior changes. And it would behoove that parent to find out what's going on, not just let it pass. And many times parents just don't just take a pass on it. They don't really see or hear that child. That's why it's important for my client to see and hear their child. And I think one of the most Well, doesn't important- it make it, isn't it if the abuse, and I don't know if there's a difference, but mm-hmm. if the abuse is ongoing or it's just maybe one incident, let's say this, in this case, you're talking about an uncle who abused mm-hmm. uh, your client. Right. Uh, was it, yeah, if it, was it ongoing? Uh, was it just, you know, did it just happen one time? No, and, it was and does ongoing. does that make a difference? No, you know, it, it doesn't ongoing. seem to make a difference because even if it's once, it could have that, it could have a very traumatic effect on that person, and that effect just stays with them. So that doesn't. What seem happened to, at the funeral? How did he confront the? Well, it was very interesting or, or because she, he was go, he, at the funeral, and and you know we work on that. A lot of therapists, you know, I think send their people out too soon to confront or care front, but we work on that. So they they have a um, a, a method to to care fronting at the funeral. He didn't get a long. He didn't get a time to really speak with him for a long time. But he did go up to him and he looked at him and he says, "You know, I know what you did to me and it was not okay." And that uncle looked stunned and just walked away. And he did know. And that that when you can do that, you're seeing that abuser from the eyes of the adult, not from the eyes of the child. And until you could care front an abuser, you're always looking at them from the eyes of a child. You're never that adult. And it's important that he Arlene, does it make a difference? Does it make a difference whether, I mean, you said he care fronted he can, mm-hmm. his abuser and he walked away, his uncle walked away. Right. Uh, does it matter so much what the abuser does? That's not really important, whether they no. engage in a conversation or he walks away or whatever. That's really right. not the issue. That's not the issue. The issue is you have to be strong enough. To, to care front that person. The adult has to be there to stand up for the child because usually the abuser will deny it or they're, they're not really keen to be in some kind of a conversation about it. Sometimes abusers do take responsibility, though, but it doesn't happen very often. The, the idea is to not be afraid that that person is in the room and not be afraid to st- stand up to them and look them in the eye and say, I, knew, I know what you did to me, and that was not okay. And that's a very strong statement. It's not coming from the scared child. It's coming from the adult. 
and that's what's important. What, what do you do if the person is not available? They died, or they're just not available, or you, you know, you're not able to ever see them again. So right. how do you confront the abuser? Well, you know, we, we, we have to do it through through letter writing and working on it, um, you know, from the inside, from the inside, and that's really what we have to do. And it does work because I had a woman whose father passed away, and we worked on it, and, until it was until she got through it. Um, and also, there are other people to be care fronted. You know, if your the mother is alive, you know, parents are the are the keepers are the people who are supposed to keep a child safe. And in, and why did they not do that? Is a question. Why did they not see signs? You know, I have a cat, and when I look at her, she doesn't speak English, but I, but when I look at her, I could tell. Does she need? You know, Scarlett doesn't look so good. I think maybe I have to call the vet. And. Anyone who's in tune to someone you love, especially a child, should be able to pick up on cues. And when parents don't do that, it's because they really don't see or hear that kid. And that's really what it's all about. So the parents, parents should know. And when they don't know, you know, it's really shame on them. But don't you think sometime, and this is my experience as mm-hmm. a social worker, uh, that and, and and this is a case that I had confronted many years ago, but uh, the twelve year old daughter was being abused by her father, and the mother did know but was too afraid to do anything because she was you know didn 't want to have to leave the husband because right. he supported them and for a lot of different reasons so sure. it wasn 't that she didn 't know she just didn 't act on it so that 's a well, different scenario that 's horrible that's that's even worse i mean that that that's a horrible situation that a mother is willing to sacrifice a child i mean think of it i mean that's so, that's just unconscionable it's an unconscionable thing i just have no respect i people like that ought to be put in jail as far as i'm concerned when you know something is going on with your child and you and you let it happen because of your own selfishness that is is just unconscionable a mother is supposed a mother a parent should 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 give their life for that child should 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 run in front of a train for that child anything not give that child up to be had by another parent and not do anything about it i don't know how people could live with themselves but i guess i guess what it comes down to is adults can do what they want and many times they're just selfish including the mothers who want to turn a blind eye and that that's just unacceptable and unacceptable as far as i'm concerned and when and when you is look it at poss- it, I'm sorry. What is it ever possible to suffer childhood trauma and not carry it into adulthood, and to be able to just you know adjust to it with, without being traumatized or having no, it affect I, your life? I really life? don't think so. I think you could run from it for so long, and then it's going to catch you. And the older we get. And the more set we get in our lives, you know, the, the stiller we become is when, when it really catches us. You know, when we leave home, we just want to get away, and we're just like uh, going, and we want to leave everything behind us. But things like this are not left behind. They're taken in our soul. They're taken with us to adulthood. And while we're young and running and doing things, I guess we could not look at it as much. But as we get older, yes, it, it really it's, it starts to, to come up more and more. And then we have to look at it. And meanwhile, if, if you look at somebody's life or if they look at their life, they're going to see where, where it has um, taken from them, where it has uh, tripped them up in life, and whether it's work or love or with their children, anything. I, mean, I once had a man who, who was, who was a, a big producer come in, and he was, re- he was in his early 30s, 
and he just had a great life until he achieved. He got he had a big TV show hit. He he had a um, uh, they gave him his own production company, and he came in my office and he sat down and he looked at me and he says, "I have everything and I have nothing," and he started to cry. And when he reached that particular pinnacle of his success that he wanted so badly, he made it. But there were, all that other stuff came up for him that he had been running from and, 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 you know, going after his career, which was all fine. But when he came in and said, I have everything and I have nothing, and it was all around childhood abuse, that's sad. And don't you think, we only have a few minutes left, but don't yes. you think that also when, uh, when an individual faces uh, a, a crisis uh, later in life or during his lifetime and he, sort of, he or she has sort of thought that they left this childhood trauma behind, right. that that crisis then awakens all of these emotions and you can't oh, really definitely. repress definitely. them. Yeah. Yes, and not only and, that, I had, a, I had a man come to me that uh, his doula, who, who was there when his wife gave birth, uh, when the baby was born, he went in the other room and he sobbed. He was inconsolable. And it wasn't just for joy. His childhood abuse came up for him in that moment. So you never know. Yeah. It can be a very positive time in one's life, but it's a, that's a perfect example. Or it can be something very negative. Right. Uh, yeah, I would think so. You know, the, 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 the birth of a baby, the yes. marriage of your kids, uh, right. the death of a parent, whatever. Yeah, and that can just, all these emotions surface or resurface. Right, um, and then yeah. more come up with it than we even bargained for. <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> But, you know, but you're there to help. So talk to right. us in these next couple. Yeah, well, your book, obviously, Care Frontation, Breaking Free from Childhood Trauma is one way to do it. You can buy it on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. But Arlene, tell us more uh, in, in terms of a website or websites that we can go to to follow your work or to connect with you. Or if, Well, I do uh, have know, we a website, uh, Arlene, uh, Arlene Drake, www whatever they do. I'm not really technical here. And I do have a Facebook page, um, Arlene Drake, Ph.D., on, on Facebook. And that's what I have so far. And, I, and the so, good thing about this book is, you know, I graduate people. And I have a, there's a whole process to graduating. And we have a ceremony that takes about, you know, the process is about six weeks when you're ready to graduate. You have certain things to do. And it's really beautiful. And people, when they leave... Their story is no longer running them, and that's my main goal, when your story is no longer running you. Any so closure. Yeah, there yes. is closure to it, and right. I think very often in these cases th that you've described, there is no closure. People can be in continuing therapy for 10 or right. 15 years, and then it's, it's sort of like there's just no closure to the whole thing, so you, you right. make it obviously right. and very there's no real. End. There's no end. There's no real, what is the end game? Not to just know everything, but how to take care of that child and how to take care of yourself. How many clients have you had? I mean, oh like you're God. talking about, you've been doing this for a long time. I, I must say a thousand at least because I, I, do, I do four groups a week in my office, which I, there's usually about eight people, and then I see individuals too, so I don't even know anymore. But there, I've done many, many, many. And I know one thing, people that stick with it graduate and have a better life. People... Uh, keep in contact with me, and it's wonderful to see. doesn't mean you're not going to face problems in your life, but I think, um, especially with this right-hand, left-hand method, it's wonderful to even resolve problems. It's, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful tool to take with you in the world for whatever you're going through. 
Well, thanks and, uh, so much for being on the show today and uh, obviously discussing your technique and your book, well, Confrontation. Thank you. Breaking Free from Childhood Trauma. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Aliens with Gas is the program you're listening to. We are the Extraterrestrial Rock Show, airing every Saturday afternoon on the VoiceAmerica.com Variety Channel. And then it gets radio played on Sunday night, and that is on 99.1 FM in the East Valley and on 93.9 FM in the West Valley of Phoenix, Arizona. And I dig that because you're doing the, the Brady Bunch thing, aren't you? I am. Because <laughs> I have you, a, yeah, you doing? a theremin app. If anybody knows the Brady Bunch, what I'm talking about. UFO! It's back! <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Never gets old. Thank you, and keep watching the skies. (laughs) That's every Saturday at 2 p.m. Pacific time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me this morning is Major General Bruce Lawler, former CIA case officer, former trial lawyer, first Chief of Staff for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, former Virginia Tech professor, and retired Major General in the U.S. Army. Uh, he's also author of When Deadly Force is Involved, a look at the legal side of Stand Your Ground, Duty to Retreat, and Other Questions of Self-Defense. Welcome to the show, General. Nice to have you here today. Well, thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. A lot of formers there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, we'll talk about the present because the book is new, but we're just going to have to give your background. Um, so t- well, who is this book for, actually? You're, I know you are a, a, a gun owner, uh, and you are an NRA member. Uh, I mean, you're a general. Of, uh, you're somebody who, to me, should be, you know, guns are, you know how to handle a gun. I'm not sure that I'm someone who could do that. But so who's the book for? Uh well, really, I wrote it because I wanted to try to help people think through the idea of possessing a firearm for self-defense, or for self-protection. If you look at the, you look at the numbers, uh, 2016, I think, there were about 
15 million people who had obtained permits to carry concealed uh, weapons. And that's not including states where permits are not required. So it's some number above 15 million. And there's about 50 million households in the country where they're, uh, that possess a firearm. And when the people uh, are are polled about why that is, uh, the, the number one reason by far is they possess them for self-protection and self-defense. And so uh, it seems to me there's a... It, it's important for people to understand how the law treats claims of self-defense, what the major issues are, and so that if they do make a decision, uh, they, they have some good information. So would you say that most of these people, you're talking about 50 million households, that's a lot of people and a lot of guns and maybe a lot of people who don't know how to handle these guns or know what to do with them. Uh, would you say that's the case that most of them don't or don't have the information? Like, uh, no, I, I I wouldn't agree that most of them don't know how to handle them. I think most of them uh, you will find do know how to handle them, and like most things, uh, it's a very small minority that tends to uh, uh, sort of blemish the uh, the majority in this thing. But it's also true that uh, the, the amount of information out there about when to when deadly force is permissible under the law um, is not as robust as I think it should be. And so uh, I wrote this to try to help people uh, who do possess firearms for purposes of self-defense to sort of get a feel for what the major issues are uh, and, uh, and then make a decision whether it's right for them because it's not right for everybody. All right, let's talk about that. What is self-defense? What is considered self-defense? Um, what does that mean? Well, it, in the con- uh, yeah. I, can, I can give you the legal definition. Uh, it's a person who, without fault, uh, uses deadly force to defend against what he or she reasonably believes is an imminent unlawful threat uh, of death or serious bodily injury, provided there's no alternative. That's a that's a mouthful, and frankly, the entire book is about that one sentence uh, because it's unpacked. Uh, what I did is I, I created a number of stories, short stories, based on actual court cases in which people were involved in defensive shootings and were prosecuted for murder and defended themselves based on self-defense, and used those cases to highlight and examine each of the major issues that appear in virtually every self-defense case. And so we look at things like, you know, what is a deadly threat? Uh, when, when can you consider a threat deadly? Uh, when is it reasonable to be afraid? Um, you, there has to be a reasonable fear. What does that mean? What, how soon is imminent? Uh, the danger must be right now kind of danger. It's not next week. It's not sometime in the future. It has to be right now. You're confronted with a life and death decision. Well, how soon is in, imminent? Uh, and what the alternatives might be, we look at what happens if you make a mistake, which has happened, where people are frightened and fearing for their lives and uh, respond and end up hurting someone, an innocent party. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of factors that, are, that we look at, unpack, and, and give people an idea how the law has traditionally handled those types of situations. So it gives people a way to think about it. Well, okay, let's take specific examples, because uh, that's the easiest to understand in the context of what all these issues are. So, sure. let's, you know, t- yeah, give us some examples of 
situations that we may be in that we think that we are in imminent danger and we view it as we have to defend ourselves and we shoot somebody uh, or attempt to shoot somebody? Uh, well, uh, sure. There was an instance uh, in my home state of Virginia a couple years ago where uh, a fellow was uh, just stopped by a convenience store, was standing in the checkout line, uh, and a robber, uh, would-be a robber, walked in the store with a handgun and opened fire um, without without provocation, without warning, suddenly uh, shot a shot the store owner. You know, people were running and uh, ducking for cover. And he, he was armed, and uh, he engaged that person immediately and, and uh, you know, stopped him from hurting anybody further. That's an example of when it occurs. Um, you know, there's a, there's a rule of three that the New York City Police Department uh, uses as a, as, a, as a rule of thumb based on the studies of police-involved shootings, and it basically says three seconds, three yards, three shots. I mean, it's very fast uh, in most situations. And so that's the kind of instance where unexpected... Um, unforeseen sudden threat appears and people have to respond. Well, in that case, in that example you gave, like, uh, did he kill the person? The, the, um, kill- he did. Uh, the individual, the person who shot the uh, store owner subsequently died. So what happens? I mean, that that's investig in that situation. For instance, what you're investigated, you have to. What I mean, the the legal process that occurs after that, you just don't. You know, you. I mean, do you need witnesses to say yes? You know that there was there was an. I mean, exactly what happens in that kind of a scenario after you've de- defended well, there's yourself? A, there's and- a, a very well known proceed investigative process that takes place. Um, and that's sort of the basis of this entire book is to discuss that investigative process and how it how it works. And the question, the overriding question in all of it, is to de- to de- to determine was the shooting really necessary? Was it really necessary for an individual to take the life of another person uh, in order to save himself or herself? That's the overriding, overarching question. And so. What happens is an investigation occurs, and it's designed to uh, determine a number of facts. Uh, and there has, the facts have to all kind of coalesce simultaneously for, for self-defense to, be, to become valid. So, for example, a uh, major question in every self-defense case is, what was, the, what was the shooter's intent? Why did he do it or she do it? Uh, if there was any ill will or anger or um, hostility toward the victim, well, frankly, that's murder. That's unlawful homicide. On the other hand, if the purpose of the shooting is to avoid being killed or to avoid being seriously injured, to try to escape from a situation that's rapidly evolving uh, and threatens to overwhelm someone, that's a completely different intent. It's a different intent. And uh, a person who's trying to save himself, uh, the law recognizes, has a right to do so. So that's one of the issues that they begin to look at. Uh, they also begin to look at what the behavior of the person who fired the gun. 
And that means the person who's the defendant, the person who uh, shot uh, his her assailant, the behavior is examined very carefully to see if it's reasonable, which means is it the kind of behavior that you would expect to see under those kinds of circumstances. So, for example, if, uh, taking our little store example, if uh, the person standing in line had uh, provoked somehow the man who came in, somehow they got in an argument, uh, it started by the person standing in line, if it got out of hand and resulted in someone's death, well, the person standing in line would not be able to claim self-defense because his behavior was unreasonable. You don't get the start of this fight, have it get out of control, and then claim that you acted in self-defense if somebody gets hurt. So that's another factor that goes in. Um, the courts will also look at the nature of the threat. Was it deadly danger? Would reasonable people look at the circumstances and say, yeah, that, that guy presented the threat of death or serious bodily injury? They'll look to see whether or not it's immediate. Is it a right now kind of threat or is it something that gets put off until, you know, sometime later? And that, and that raises interesting questions with regard to spousal abuse, which we could talk about if you want. I do, uh, because that's exactly what I was thinking. You know, as, as you were talking, I was thinking, what is, you know, domestic violence, those kinds of things, spousal abuse? That's one question. Yeah. And then also, what are there different criteria in different states or is it all the same? Uh, let me answer it this way, and I'm not trying to trivialize it at all, but it, the major issues are the same in every self-defense shooting in every state. Uh, those things that I just talked about, what is deadly danger, what is imminent, what is uh, provoc- provocative behavior on the part of the shooter, that's, that's the same everywhere. But the states will, uh, will have different approaches to deciding those questions. And, and uh, so it's, it's kind of like, if I can use a metaphor, if you know the rules of the road, you know how to drive your car, uh, you know what the law is generally, you know, stay on the right side of the road, that kind of thing. Uh, you can drive anywhere in the United States, but at the same time, you have, to, you have to know what the local laws in the state in which you're driving are so that you comply with those particular requirements. And they change. You know, some places you can turn right on red, some places you can't, some places the speed limit's 90 or whatever, other places it's not. So that, that's sort of the way to look at this. Uh, the, the general principles and the major questions are known, but there are variations uh, for different states. Now, to go back to your, um, other your spousal question abuse about question, the, if, yeah, if, spousal if you want abuse, to. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's, that's an area that's, I think, evolving, uh, where the law of self-defense is evolving, because traditionally that the requirement is for an immediate unlawful threat of death or serious bodily injury. And that does not, in, does that, that does not cover what I would call endemic abuse, long-term abuse. A woman who has beaten, uh, we all know how that progresses and gets worse and worse. And so the woman is placed in a position of, well, when is the next be- beating going to end in my death? Um, how imminent is that? And so it puts them in an impossible position. Um, 
But that has been the law, and indeed one of the cases that I, I used to illustrate the, the question of how soon is imminent is a, a woman who was treated just abominably, just horribly, um, and finally ended up uh, shooting her husband while he was asleep. Well, uh, the court in that case said it's pretty hard to hold or to understand or, or to believe that a person who is asleep poses anybody else an imminent threat of deadly danger, and so they upheld that woman's conviction, which I think was wrong, but they did on that basis. The law has changed or is changing so that the model penal code now says that what really is important in these cases is not time. It's not the idea that a person has been exposed to uh, danger over a period of time and and at some point in the future it may cross the line and, and kill her. The important question is, does the person, does the person abuse have a reasonable belief, and is there a basis for that reasonable belief uh, to think that she's in deadly danger or he's in deadly danger and could be killed at any time? And that would justify um, uh, the use of deadly force to prevent it. Now, I will tell you that's not a favored response by the courts because um, the court does not like what they call preemptive strikes. They want to be comfortable that uh, it's very clear that the person who is asserting self-defense was really and truly immediately in danger of dying or being seriously hurt before they can resort to self uh, to deadly force. So, that's so sort of a, General, a, imminent really, and that's they really stick to the word, I guess, imminent. I'm thinking of a case many years ago where I think it was a football player who had been abusing his wife, and she ended up, similar to the case you're describing, she slit his throat while he was asleep at night. And I'm actually not sure what happened to her, but uh, that was kind of a similar case that you're describing because it was this constant abuse. And then she, um, this was with a, obviously a knife. And um, I don't know if she had, there was a conviction or not. Well, I, 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 depending on how long ago the case was, uh, uh, I, I would venture to guess, and it is entirely a guess, that she probably was convicted of something, uh, perhaps not murder, but maybe, you know, a manslaughter charge that is uh, carries less jail time or something. But the courts are very, um, I think, uniformly hostile to the idea that you can you can strike now to prevent some danger you think will take place in the future. So that's the reason for imminent danger, for immediate right now requirement that someone be threatened because the courts are, are very concerned about the use of self-defense as a ruse, if you will, for an act of murder or an act of unlawful homicide. What about the example, and there are, the, there are obviously the examples when you are in your house and you are you and and you sense that well someone's in the house or you're frightened by that. Is that talk to us about that kind of a situation? And you you know you think you're going to yeah you could be killed or not or you don't know if the person even has any firearms but you shoot them. Well, here that's that involves. Uh, a concept known as the Castle Doctrine. Uh, virtually every state in the nation has a, a version of the Castle Doctrine. And basically what it says is that uh, a person who is inside their home 
does not have to retreat before employing deadly force to defend themselves against an external invader. In other words, someone coming at them from outside the house, breaking into their house. They don't have to run it anywhere. They can defend themselves. At the same time, all of the other elements of self-defense have to be present. There has to be a deadly threat. It has to be right now. It has to be reasonable for the person to fear that they're about to be injured. Uh, But in most cases, if you're talking about a person alone uh, inside their home and someone breaks into it uh, in the middle of the night or, or something like that, uh, all of those factors tend to favor the use of force to prevent any any harm. Uh, still, the problem with the Castle Doctrine, and this is where you run into disparities among the states, is that the definition of home varies. So, you know, in the state, I'm, I have no idea if this is true, but just as an example, one state might say that a home is just the inside of the dwelling where people actually live. Another state may define the home as including the porches around that are attached to the house. Other states may include an attached garage. Other states may include a detached garage. So it varies as to where the, where the exception applies and that people may uh, assert, uh, employ deadly force without first trying to escape or find an alternative means to avoid it. Well, here's another example. I don't know that if this is uh, too much different than what we just were talking about, but let's say you have a, a child or an infant or a baby in a crib and you hear somebody and they are in that room and you don't know who it is. I mean, you're protecting your child um, and you shoot them. Is that imminent day what is describe that kind of a scenario what how do the courts view that in terms of self-defense right in each of these situations i think that i again to go back to the the overarching question is was it really necessary to take the life in order to prevent injury to the child and so there will be a number of questions that will be asked um Frankly, a stranger in uh, the baby's room is about as close as you can get to imminent harm. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're, we're talking kidnapping and, and, and those kinds of things. Uh, so without trying to prejudge it, I have to say that it's all about two things, the facts and then what people believe was reasonable conduct. So in those situations, what happens is the state, uh, the courts, they crowdsource it. Uh, they, they gather a group of people from the community, and they say, okay, tell us what you think the facts were. You know, when this individual uh, was in the baby's room, was the individual trying to pick up the baby? Did the individual have a weapon? Was the individual acting irrationally? You know, all of those questions have to be answered. What What are the facts uh, of the case? And then, given those facts, do you think it was reasonable for the homeowner to shoot the individual? Juries in that kind of scenario, um, I suspect, are going to be very sympathetic to the homeowner unless there's something really, really strange, uh, something that, you know, the person in the... 
the person in the bedroom is a, a close relative that stops by all the time, that, that kind of thing. So, or a father or mother in a custody case or something like that. that it, exactly. Right? That, that's the kind of yeah. thing where people will stop and say, well, you know, the dad was in the room and it may be that the dad was going to try to take the child in contrary to a custody order. But there's no evidence whatsoever that the dad would ever harm the child, whether, uh, and there's no evidence the dad has attempted to harm mom. Uh, so those are the kinds of factors that, that play into the decision. It's, it's almost never clear-cut, and uh, one of the vagaries, I guess, of the law is that you know, reasonable people can, dif- can differ about what's reasonable. Uh, they'll look at the facts and come to different conclusions. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. It's been fascinating talking to you, and obviously the book is also really a very interesting book. When Deadly Force is Involved, I want to mention the book again, A Look at the Legal Side of Stand Your Ground, Duty to Retreat, and Other Questions of Self-Defense. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon, bookstores everywhere. Uh, and talk to us about any websites that we can go to in reference to the book or to what you are doing, because I know you teach self-defense as well. Uh, the, the book is, uh, I have a website, brucelawler.com, all one word, brucelawler.com, and uh, it's got links to where you can buy it, um, and it has other um, other things I've written about the issue, uh, why I wrote this particular book. Um, this thing came about, frankly, because I was, I've been thinking about Homeland Security for a very long time. Uh, we spent billions trying to figure out what state and federal and local governments, private sector can do to, to protect the systems we all rely on, transportation systems and so forth. But we haven't spent a lot of time thinking about what the role of the individual is in this new environment and what that person can do. So this is an effort to try to just help them figure that out. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, and I think you've helped a lot of us today and a lot of my listeners. Uh, Major General Bruce Lawler, a former CIA officer, and I'm not going to go through all the formers again, but uh, yeah. his book, When Deadly Force <laughs> is Involved, I'm going to have you on the here. show again. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have to have you back. I have lots more questions, but right now we do have to say goodbye. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.